there's nothing in the world quite like Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave, and you are listening to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. This is a show about the creators of three world-renowned blocks in Beverly Hills. In a moment, you'll hear from one of them, Michael Chow, the restaurateur, artist, and designer of the game-changing Giorgio Armani store on Rodeo Drive. I gotta get people from ground floor to upstairs, right? They come in, I gotta suck them up somehow, you know? I can use a sucking machine, but that's a little bit impractical. So what I did, was present a mistake case. Boom, there, right? Meet Michael Chow and hear about his dramatic designs shortly. Now, let's check in with our voice from Rodeo Drive, Kathy Gohari. She's with the Rodeo Drive Committee. Since we first met Kathy, she's been dealing with a lot, including lockdown and the first reopening of Rodeo Drive. Then the George Floyd protests happened, and now Kathy's grappling with another reopening. Oh my God, it actually feels great. Listen, it is, like I said before, it is a new norm, and we are all working uh, very hard to make sense of this new reality. Um, However, we're all very excited to be back. I believe that we are all working on similar shifts, but reduced hours. Certain stores, smaller stores have reduced staffs. Larger stores have gotten creative with different teams. And we are here um, with our doors open, welcoming clients from all over the country, I have to say. Can you tell me about any interesting experiences you've had since you went back to business? So uh, I have to say the crowd is very different than the crowd we normally get on Radio Drive. I believe it's truly a sign of times of this specific times where many of our what we consider our local established clients are not necessarily ready to come out yet. Some of them are still preferring to see the collection in their homes. And what are you doing with things like returned clothes? Do you have policy on quarantining clothes? Absolutely. Everybody does. So all the uh, stores on Rodeo have very strict guidelines, not just county health ordinances, but also brands have gone uh, to extreme um, extent to try to come up with different creative ways of being able to keep their employees and their clients safe. For example, let's say you come to the store and you choose four garments to try on. Those four garments are either coming off the floor or from the back stock. If it's coming from the back stock, it's covered in plastic. Comes into the fitting room, you are alone in the fitting room. The associate waits outside. You try on the garments and let's say you choose to pick one or two pieces out of the four pieces. The remainder of the items that are left in the fitting room, after the client has left, the associate goes back removes the items, sanitizes the high-touch areas of the fitting room, then the garments come back down to our backstock area where we have a quarantine area for the clothing. Then, depending on the size of the store and the capabilities, they either have manual steamers or they have steaming closets to disinfect the clothes. And that is the step that we take with any kind of item that has been touched, not even tried on, but touched by a client in a fitting room. Who knew that a steamer could work overtime? 
Listen, and everybody has their own steamers, and guess what? They're pre-touched with their names on it. Nobody's even sharing steamers these days. That's Kathy Gohari, director of client engagement at Valentino. Now let's go back to 1988. That's when Giorgio Armani opened his flagship shop on Rodeo Drive, and people were awed. Here was a 13,000 square foot retail space with a sweeping steel-clad staircase and white gold leaf paneled walls. It was created by Michael Chow in collaboration with Mr. Armani himself and Los Angeles architect Thane Roberts. Giorgio Armani Beverly Hills set a new standard for boutiques on Rodeo Drive. Henceforth, big league luxury names would be in an architectural arms race, teaming up with renowned designers to create interiors as buzzworthy as their fashion. But are grand-scale flagship shops still relevant in our age of virtual shopping? Find out soon. And hear about how Giorgio Armani Beverly Hills became a clubhouse for Hollywood. First, Let's hear from Michael Chow, or M, as he likes to be called. My name is M, a.k.a. Michael Chow, and fundamentally I'm an artist, I'm a painter, but I have done acting as well. I've done about, I don't know, 20 movies, and uh, I'm a poet, I am an architect, designer, collector. And he is the impresario behind the international Mr. Chow restaurant empire. Michael Chow is a cultural legend. He was born in Shanghai. His father was a leading figure of the Peking Opera, and theatricality has always dominated his work. Michael Chow first made waves in 1968 when he opened Mr. Chow in London. To change it up for Chinese cuisine, Mr. Chow offered a Beijing-inspired menu amidst a chic cafe society environ. The dapper waiters were Italian. Then Michael Chow opened Mr. Chow in Manhattan. It was a dramatic white marble eatery with a Lalique glass entrance door. Michael Chow ran it with his glamorous wife, Tina Chow. Everyone went to Mr. Chow. One day, Hubert de Givenchy gave Mr. Chow a rave review, and then Giorgio Armani came calling. That particular restaurant, 57th Street, Givenchy said it's like a jewel box. So Armani was very impressed by that. But was Mr. Armani a client? Well, no, Mr. Armani, don't go anywhere. You know, He's, he's one of the uh, Italian recruits, as it were. Yeah. He's in his own kingdom, yes. which is Italy. He, you know, he's royalty of Italy. But sometimes he visits. So he went and visited uh, Mr. Chow. He was very impressed by the design. He saw my light on the table, which is very subtle light. He's very moved by that. So he sent me Couture 80 tuxedos. And the waiter's been wearing it, you know, for a few years. Are you saying to me that he looked at the table lamps at Mr. Chow and utilized that lighting? No, it's not just an ordinary table lamp. It's like magic. So what I did is I put a light in the center of the table. Not very bright. It's a circular light. And then lit the flower in the center. So you don't know where they come from. You, you think, look up in the ceiling, there's nothing there. But in fact, it's underlit, right? So also gives a upper light to the people who sit around it. And also give a focus 
to human species, you know, yes. they all sit around <laughs> around uh-huh. the campfire, right? In the in the in the primitive days, right? Yes. So that's a brilliant light. Extraordinary. So he was very impressed by that and in turn gives him the inspiration. His runway lights up now. This is the first time any now you see runway light up because Armani did it first. Armani did it because he inspired by my table and so on and so forth. Fantastic. How after the tuxedos and the lightings did he contact you to design the Rodeo Drive boutique? How did that happen? So Armani was very impressed by that. So not just the table, but the, the whole thing, every detail is the universe. So the way I design uh, is I use my eyes, my nose, and my ear. Nose, because you don't want the smell to go anywhere. You follow me? Yes. So you have to be conscious, like every bathroom should have a window and all that stuff. Or the cooking smell must not come up and all that stuff. Okay, smell. Smell is important, okay, in the, in the building. Interesting. And ears, because of soundproofing, right? You don't want to hear somebody walking on top of you. You don't want to see next door uh, having activity that you don't want to hear. <laughs> so ear is very important. So sound and ear and, of course, the sight. So Rodeo is extremely tall ceiling, okay? Yep. Extremely tall. But the thing is they want to put a um, second floor menswear, okay? Ground floor is women. So take me up to that second floor menswear department. I got to get people from ground floor to upstairs, right? They come in. I got to suck them up somehow. You know, I can't use a sucking machine, but that's a little bit impractical. <laughs> so what I did was present them a staircase. Boom, there, right? And on their way up, they must be entertained visually. Why? 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 Because you get bored. After five steps, you say, well, how long is this thing? I can't forget about it. <laughs> when you walk up this Armani staircase, which is still there, right? still there, standing there as we speak. You see the interior, looking down into the interior of the women's section. It's very beautiful. And it's always nice to look down on something. It's like on top of a mountaintop, you look down, right? So same thing, same philosophy. And then you also have the street. So you're very happy to go up. And then you go to the men's room. And by the way, on the way there, I utilize another boutique area, very cute, kind of a bag area, right? So so you look at that and break up your journey. And then you go upstairs and spend a lot of money in the men's department. <laughs> so what you're saying to me was that the staircase was really almost like a sculpture. Everything should be like sculpture. Like in Mr. Chow, you have the champagne trolley. You have the dessert trolley. You have the, this trolley, that trolley. Every piece is a piece of sculpture. You make functionality into sculpture. Make functionality into sculpture, and you make shopping or dining into theater. This was Michael Chow's gift, says Joan Juliet Buck. Joan is an author and former editor-in-chief of French Vogue. She was one of the inside crowd who frequented Mr. Chow restaurants. She held her wedding reception at Mr. Chow in London. Restaurants exist as places to see and be seen. And... It was up the spiral staircase at Mr. Chow because that was the room that everybody went. And particularly right now when we can't go out and we don't have restaurants, it's important to remember how potent glimpses are. You walk into a restaurant and you see somebody out of the corner of your eye. She lunched with Jacqueline Onassis at Mr. Chow in New York. 
you walked in and the, the coat check was on the left and you were sort of on a balcony, you were on that raised bit and you could look down into the pool of diners and look down and see who was there without really being seen. Yeah. Talk to me about kind of Michael's obsessiveness when it comes to design. Where does it come from? You know, I think certain people are wired to have a really, really uh, hypersensitive eye. You know, some people have hypersensitive ears. I don't know. Certain people have it. He always had it. Michael's standards have always been impeccably high, horrifyingly high. Once he saw me in a ruffled blouse and he was like, John, ruffles? <laughs> but at the same time, he's kind of friendly about it, isn't he? Like, it's kind, kind of an interesting way that he approaches that. You see, he, I do think so much of Michael is self-generated. He's self-propelling. I think that is the great thing about Michael. He collects what he likes, but he doesn't copy that's the author Joan Juliet Buck. Michael Chow, the collector, is famed for his passion for the French Art Deco furniture designer Emile Jacques Ruhlman. And that influence found its way into the look of Giorgio Armani Beverly Hills. Oh, Emile Jacques Ruhlman, wow, he's my god. So Emile Jacques Ruhlman came along in 1920. He continues to solve a lot of problems of 18th century furniture in the contemporary way, and he's a genius. And um, so I came out of architecture school, and those days, no one knows Art Deco. Art Deco was dead in the water because of Bauhaus. Bauhaus is in contradiction to uh, Art Deco. Bauhaus wants to make everything mass produced mm-hmm. by machines. Yes. So Ruman, bad name, you know, elitist. Ruman's bed used to cost the same price as the house. Think about right. it. So Ruman be my god, and nobody, all the architects know him. Nobody knows him. I'm the only one to discover a treasure. So I started collecting him, and I become had a major, major collection of his. And Metropolitan Museum was going to exhibit my collection with a flag in the front and everything, but that didn't come about due to a uh, little thing called divorce. You feel the Ruhlman influence in the understated opulence of the Giorgio Armani store, in its furnishings, and in the white, gold-leaf-lined, backlit wall panels. Yeah, for wall panels, you see, all my design, I hope, lasts forever. Physically and in every way, lasts forever, you know? You walk in there and you tell me when it was designed. can be yesterday, you know? There's no, there's no difference. Timeless. Timeless. Right? Timeless. Yeah. And very simple to be timeless. You just have to be true, that's all. True to your time and true to yourself, you know? Michael Chow's design of Giorgio Armani Beverly Hills remains intact while many other boutiques have come, gone, and done away with their lavish interiors. Edie Cohen is the deputy editor of Interior Design Magazine. She says that sense of timelessness is quintessentially Armani. It was very, very classical, very elegant, and unabashedly so, and timeless. I mean, nobody, or very few people, throw away 
an article of Armani clothing. You might put it in your closet and then bring it back years later and combine it in different ways and combine it with maybe jeans or make it look a little more street and casual. But it's still something that you hold on to and you know uh, is meant to last. And you know it's, it's fine. It's really just fine and it's fine design. So, Edie, tell us the story of the Giorgio Armani Boutique on Rodeo Drive in terms of its significance in design. It was one of the first shops to really create an environment, an experience. Now, experience is the word that we hear so much about now, but really not so much then. Uh, The Armani store itself was very instrumental in introducing the brand to America, um, it was the very embodiment of the Armani label. It was elegant. It was frankly luxurious. It was classic. And as far as the design of the shop is concerned, it's got very much of a a scenographic quality, which is understandable in that Michael is the son of, of actors and he himself has acted in film and TV. Um, And it's scenographic in both subtle and bold ways. The subtle way, of course, is the lighting. And then the bold ways are the interior elements like um, the very industrial grand staircase, the beautiful gilt panels that are not only display vehicles, but they fold and they allow the space to be reconfigured into little more intimate environments um, and help to break down the grand volume of the store. I think the idea was boutiques within a boutique. Yep, that was it. And also it was, I think, the first store on Rodeo Drive and maybe elsewhere to create a statement street front with the architecture. It wasn't just, you know, a flat glass window allowing you to look in and see the fashion and as a display vehicle for the fashion itself. It really kind of drew you in. It really meant to create uh, a sense of architecture and design on the street. Giorgio Armani Beverly Hills on Rodeo Drive set a new standard for the design of luxury flagships. Following on from its conception, Peter Marino designed boutiques for Louis Vuitton and Chanel. Rem Koolhaas designed Prada's epicenter, as the store on Rodeo Drive is known. David Chipperfield has created Rodeo Drive boutiques for Valentino menswear and Bali. But now retail is in flux. More and more people are shopping online. So is a 13,000 square foot flagship for a luxury brand relevant anymore? I asked Michael Chow. I think home delivery, Amazon, the whole thing, that is already started. It's unstoppable. And that change is coming. In other words, warehouse driven rather than boutique everywhere. So these mega, maybe even get bigger, maybe have other elements coming in and it will mutate to something different. For instance, AR is coming out, you know, virtual reality and all that. So all that going to eliminate, we don't need to physical space. But at the end, the physical space still play a part. At the end, nothing can replace the theater, right? Except stop temporarily by COVID-19. And after that, we can still get back into the theater again. And we can sit next to each other, you know. 
Imagine playing、um, dice six feet apart. You know, it's ridiculous. Giorgio Armani Beverly Hills goes beyond mere retail. It has always been a clubhouse for Hollywood. When Giorgio Armani opened his boutique, he was busy modernizing the concept of award season dressing. Come award season, all of the big name stars have made their way up the back of the house VIP elevator at Armani. Julia Roberts, Jodie Foster, Glenn Close, Kate Blanchett, and Hollywood's leading men. Kathy Gohari worked for Giorgio Armani and was there. At one time, you had Brad Pitt, George Clooney, and like Leonardo DiCaprio, all standing on the floor talking to each other as they were getting fitted for their tuxedos for the next day. <laughs> I mean, really, this was a dream come true for any. Person, can these kind of things don't happen anymore? To get all three of them on the same time. What did they like about Mr. Armani's clothing? They liked the way they looked in it. You know, when you wore an Armani tuxedo at that point, you were extremely well dressed. The tuxes fit you impeccably, and you were able to be sophisticated and hot, and not dowdy. You see. During those years when people used to talk about the fashion on the red carpet, I mean, it was almost like a joke. Every man who came on the red carpet, Armani, 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 Armani. There was no other brand.、Mm-hmm. Really, there was no other brand.、Mm-hmm. Everybody had a slightly different version of the Armani suit、yeah. or the Armani tux suit, and each one looked better and hotter than the other. Truly, it was a sight to be seen. That's Kathy Gohari of the Rodeo Drive Committee recalling Oscar Week, but the week Michael Chow and I talked was far in spirit from Oscar Week. It was when millions of people took to the streets in protest at the George Floyd killing. It was a difficult time for fashion retail, partly because some people chose to break into stores, and partly because luxury fashion itself. Was a target of the rage against the white power structure. I asked Michael Chow how he felt about all of that. Well, now you're getting into a heavy subject, but、uh, it's just part of the process for justice. At the end of the day, very simple word is justice. Okay, you have the plotter, you have the looter, you have the rioter. The worst, of course, is the plotter. Look at the plotter. Okay. In particular, the raid of particularly in Rodeo Drive, like eat the rich and all that, people are angry. You know, people are so long of injustice. You know, got to be addressed. For Michael Chow, this is personal. He has experienced both class revolution and the sting of racism. His father was a giant of the Peking Opera who lost everything in Chairman Mao's Cultural Revolution. Michael Chow wound up on his own in London. He was thirteen, but he made his way to the prestigious Central Saint Martin School of Art. He met and married the model turned Vogue fashion director Grace Coddington. The rest is history, but it wasn't easy for Michael Chow. Completely uprooted, I lost everything, meaning my parents, my country, my culture, the whole thing. You know, in a split second, right? And landed along in Mars, and the Mars happened to be London, post World War Two, six years after that, and、uh, 
so I was alone and uh, so I have to climb out of there to survive. And I met with much racism and uh, injustice. And uh, then I appointed myself later to be the unofficially cultural ambassador to China to bring Chinese culture and to show how great Chinese culture is to the West. And that my life through Mr. Chow, through my painting, through everything I touch is to do with uniting the two, you know, in the simple words of, uh, uh, which quite appropriate at this time, uh, Rodney King, why can't we all get along? What are you thinking about getting along right now? Why can't we all get along? Well, get along to basically totally disconnected between China and United States, between East and the West, and a lot of ignorance, a lot of misunderstanding, all that stuff, and uh, a lot of violence and uh, and politically driven, whatever you know. So understanding. So only tools I have as a modern day priest, as it were, as an artist. So to enrich through art is a medium that's universal and is eternal. And uh, so it's very fortunate and humbled and lucky for me to have that means of expression before me. Michael Chow is an artist, restaurateur, designer, and collector. His many projects include Giorgio Armani's boutique on Rodeo Drive. I'm Bronwyn Cosgrave. I look forward to sharing more stories with you on the next episode. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the City of Beverly Hills. It is edited by Francis Anderton and Avishai Artsy. Brian Banks composed the theme music. Livia Manduel, Mirabelle Allen, and Guthrie McCarty-Vashon are the production coordinators. The executive producer is Lynn Winter. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Rodeo Drive, the podcast. Thanks for listening.